Good evening. Good to see you all. You made it through the first day, almost. Hope you're feeling okay. It's a beautiful day up here. Always helps. So the, the talk this evening, the title is The Present Alone is Our Happiness. I don't use the word happiness in very many talk titles. Uh, the other thing that's... Um, one of my sort of favorite challenging things to do is to actually spend a couple hours before these talks, writing these talks, and somewhere knowing in my mind, because I've worked with so many of you and know so many of you so well, I'm like, what have I said that they haven't heard me say a million times? Mm-hmm. So it's the pros and cons of a, of a well-tuned audience. So I guess just beginning by, so what do we mean, what do I mean when I say present? What is present? And again, I think there's, there's a complicated thing that has arisen in meditation culture around there's this place called the present moment and like you should spend more time there and you totally don't. And it creates this kind of, I think, unintended consequence of uh, meditating correctly, doing the practice correctly or incorrectly. The Buddha says something very interesting to a student named Udayan who comes to him and he says, let be the past let be the future, and I will teach you the Dhamma. So when the Buddha talks about this word present or present moment, just a, a slight technical aside, there's no Pali term, there's no ancient word or concept in the early discourses that would mean anything like the present moment. So that's, that's a very much of a Western convention, a Western English concept. But usually when he points to something like the present moment, like he does here, let be the past, let be the future, and I will teach you the Dhamma, he's really talking about the Dhamma, or the Dharma. So the Dharma is that which is always happening right now, which it turns out to be a lot of stuff. Right? So when we talk about mindfulness, the moment is so full and so rich, and there's so much happening in every single moment. The moment is actually gigantic. And so we don't, that's why mindfulness is about fullness of mind, fullness of experience, but we don't see the fullness of experience. We, we sliver it out into little pieces to feel bad about or not good enough about or wish I had that sliver, I don't like this sliver. And we, we really divide things up. And this word V, Vipassana or consciousness, vijnana, means differentiated seeing. And that, that, that's a lot of what makes life so complicated is we, we, we differentiate what we're seeing, what we want to see, what we think we should see. And so we, we, we rarely get that full moment. And usually we have these kinds of moments, whether they're on a retreat or we're out in nature. We, we have these moments. We say it all the time, like you know, we want to stop and take it all in. We've all had these moments in our life where we do feel a connection to something. We, see, we feel a fullness, a contentment. It doesn't happen all the time, but it happens, doesn't it? We open up to the fullness of experience. So when he talks about that, he talks about this dharma. And to just say a few words about that. One place, and I've, I've, I've given this uh, talk many times, I think it's so important, one place in the discourses where the Buddha actually describes 
in great detail what this Dhamma is and the noble quest. This Dhamma I have reached is deep, difficult to see, quiet and excellent, subtle, beyond words. But people delight and revel in their place. It is difficult for those people who delight and revel in their place to see this ground, this condition arising, this Dhamma. I'll just unpack that for just a minute. I used to think when he used to say that this Dhamma I have reached is difficult to see or difficult to awaken to, I always felt like you needed to have like really good meditative chops. Like I, I can't see the Dharma because I'm like not that smart and I can't concentrate and I'm all over the place. Right? And so this word difficult to see. But it doesn't really mean so much that it's difficult to see like you have to be talented or something to see. It really means dudasi, this word dukkha, painful to see. And so the, the present moment, a lot of times, the, the, the present moment experience can be sort of a bit painful. Right. And so when he's saying that it, it's difficult to see, it's hard to see, he's really kind of more saying it's painful to see life. There's a painful element to it. Almost, it almost seems to be there in every moment of experience. And so we, we, we get close to that, we touch into that, we feel into that, and what do we do? We resist, we repel, we proliferate, we imagine a better moment to be in. We, we, there's something about life that we could just say in a very simple way. There's something about life that just seems hard. I'm sure you've seen this before. It just seems, I have that, I'm like, you know, and that's always the question I ask myself. I'm like, is, is life just really, really hard? Or is this like me adding something to it that's making it worse? Probably a little bit of both. I don't think I'll ever sort that out. Uh, French writer Blaise Pascal writes this quote that I love so much he wrote in the 1700s. He said, all human misery stems from the fact that we can't sit quietly in a room by ourselves. You would just be sitting by yourself, nothing happening, no external pain or unpleasant stimulation. and you're just sitting there just completely freaking out in the privacy of your own mind about absolutely nothing at all. It's just suffering, miserable. It's just manufacturing it. Right. This is part of the dilemma. <coughs> So then the other question becomes, well, what do we, what do we mean by happiness, which is a, a word I think that's grossly misunderstood, a word that I don't really use that often, mostly because I think I'm just scared of it. Happiness is scary to me, actually, because I'm afraid I'm going to get it, and it's going to go away, and then I'm going to be back to this again. Right? I, think I'll, I, think I'll, I think most of us, actually, if we're really honest, are either confused by happiness or really honestly quite scared of it. Because we don't know what it means or we don't know that it will last. We, uh, I'm also very suspicious of people who are overly happy. This toxic kind of positivity we see in our culture uh, frightens me to some degree. I'm very suspicious of it. Uh, and I'm not proud of that assessment. I'm not like happy that that's where I'm at, but that seems to be part of my situation. So if you look at happiness research, which is kind of an interesting thing to do, um, 
if I could go back and do it again, if I had listened to my mom, and which I didn't do, I don't think anybody listens to their mom, uh, and gone to college, uh, if people I met in my cultivating emotional balance training who are happiness researchers, they literally go into the laboratory every day and they actually study happiness. I was like, what a great idea. And the basic measurement is very interesting. The basic measure, measurement is we think or we perceive or we imagine that happiness is about getting what I want, right? So the goal of life is for me to get what I want and to avoid what I don't want. And if I could get the things that I want, then I would be happy. Which, you know, most people would say, yeah, that sounds about right. But if we look a little further, one of the big dilemmas with that setup is that means happiness is always in the future. It's always later. It's never here. It's always a futuring. When I get X, I will be happy. A plus B equals C. And so that always, it, I'm always kind of screwing myself because I'm always operating under the assumption that I'm actually not happy now, but I will be happy later when I get this degree, when I get this job, when I get X amount of money in the bank, when, 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 fill in the blank and I'm sure you have all your own interesting variables about what will happen, what you'll get, what you'll have, and when you, when you accomplish that task, you'll be happy. Are you familiar with this formula? I think you should chuck it. I've tried, it's, hard, it's a hard habit to break, I know. So it's not about getting what we want, it's actually about wanting what you have. It's actually about wanting what you have, which is always about right now. So what I have right now. And this is like really hard in our culture because of the fact that we, we're so constantly comparing what we have versus what other people have. We look at what other people have and we look at what we have and then we compare and we assess and we make all these hierarchies and, uh, and that's like brutal. That's also the opposite. Nothing will rob you from gratitude more than that comparison mechanism. It's at the root of envy and jealousy, resentment. It's a futile exercise. So how do we want what we have uh, and actually have gratitude or being able to enjoy the things that we have. Because right? even when we get what we want, how long do you have it before you just come up with something else you want? Does the thing ever do the thing for you? Right? Nothing is, if you have a small child, I have a small child at four, four years old, this, this whole thing I'm saying right now plays out in him like on the moment to moment. It's actually quite comical. Like he'll, we'll go to Walmart or go somewhere. He, he wants to get a toy. He's really into toys. And he's like so convinced that when he gets it, he's like, and then we do the whole thing. He wants it, he craves, he demands, he does it, he gets the toy. He's cool for like two minutes. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes the toy will last hours and we're like, we got a good one, <laughs> you know? And it's like, and then, and then the next day the toy is old and crappy and uh, yucky and broke or whatever. And so it's just like, it's like actually so built in. Right, which is funny. That's one thing I love about kids is there's so much dharma in little kids. You're like, that is built right in. He just can't even not do that. Right. So how do, we, how do we learn to want what we have? And what do we really have? 
All we really have is this very life right here, right now, and not one thing more. That's it. All you have is time. You know, and this whole time thing I talked about earlier today is such an interesting thing to reflect upon because it's so stressful. I don't have enough of time. I've wasted so much time. I need to make up for lost time. And the way our economic system works is what do we do? We sell our time. You know, literally, like not so much nowadays, but like many times in our lives, you know, you get paid by the hour. Time is like actually chopped up into 60 minutes. And for that 60 minutes, you get X amount of dollars times this many hours a week. You know, that's kind of, you know, time and money and the whole system that we live in is so built into that. Don't have enough of time, gonna be late, gonna run out of time. How much time? When actually it's so stressful, but it's really all that you actually have. And time also too is not even real. We actually made that shit up. We chopped things up into months and weeks and minutes and seconds. And let's be honest, conventionally, time is great if you wanna be at a 7.30 Dharma talk on a Monday night, totally helpful, but uh, philosophically or how we look at our lives and how we create meaning and how we make things that matter it's not so helpful there it's very stressful and to just turn up the heat a little bit when we think about the philosophy of some of these things that an uh, existential writer who I really like called Albert Camus and he says the only philosophical question or the only philosophical problem is that of suicide. So that's really the only question at the end of the day. And to really assess and to judge and to ask ourselves, is, is this life worth living? And that's, me and Eileen were actually talking about this earlier around some of the things that we uh, don't like so particularly about some of the Dharma circles or some of these retreats is this kind of way in which we're kind of tiptoeing around the inevitable. We want, we want to, there's a lot of coddling that happens in these spaces nowadays, like wanting people to be secure and safe, and, uh, which is fine, but at the end of the day, we know that we're all really dealing with some pretty big stuff. Right? And, and as Camus goes on to say, and I think the Buddha says, is actually the, the other problem is the universe is actually totally incapable of providing you with any sense of meaning and purpose. It's not even its fault, it just can't do it. It also can't provide us with long-lasting happiness and satisfaction. And so then the dilemma is, what do you want to do about that? And that's something, so that, this is where this cultivation business becomes very important. Is that having a meaningful life, having a purposeful life, is something that we actually have to cultivate. There's nothing out there that can do that for you. And that can be quite exciting, actually. Or it can be scary. Or it can modulate back and forth between the two. Right? You can't, you know, as I said earlier, Mahasi Sayadaw says, you know, you, you can't have energy and enthusiasm and excitement all of the time. You just can't keep that going. And that we, we, we get tired and we get we get kind of depressed and we get sad and we get down. 
this um, book written by Bhikkhu Bodhi. It's really sort of um, one of one of the best books on the Eightfold Path. I love this passage. It starts off with chapter one, the way to the end of suffering, and he talks. He says this about everything I'm talking about right now, this dilemma that we find ourselves in. The search for a spiritual path is born out of suffering. It does not start with lights and ecstasy, but with hard tacks of pain, disappointment, and confusion. However, for suffering to give birth to a genuine spiritual search, it must amount to more than something passively received from without. It has to trigger an inner realization, a perception which pierces through the facile complacency of our usual encounter with the world to glimpse the insecurity perpetually gaping underfoot. When this insight dawns, even if momentarily, it can precipitate a profound personal crisis. It overturns accustomed goals and values mocks our routine preoccupations and leaves old enjoyments stubbornly unsatisfying. At first, such, such changes are generally not welcome, which is a little humor from Bhikkhu Bodhi, I think. We try to deny our vision and to smother our doubts. We struggle to drive away the discontent with new pursuits, but the flame of inquiry, once lit, continues to burn, and if we do not let ourselves be swept away by superficial readjustments or slouch back into patched-up version of our natural optimism, eventually the original glimmering of insight will flare up again and confront us with our essential plight. It is precisely at this point, with all escape routes blocked, that we are ready to seek a way to bring our disquietude to an end. No longer can we continue to drift complacently through life, driven blindly by our hunger for sense pleasures and the pressures of prevailing social norms. A deeper reality beckons us. We have heard the call of a more stable, more authentic happiness, and until we arrive at our destination, we cannot rest content. That's one of my favorite passages ever written because to me he's just pointing exactly at the thing that drives everything right. and so he really brings us back and of course this is really starting with, with, with where the Buddha starts in the same place we always have to remember that his this quest or we could call it a spiritual search this question this problem this dilemma this existential situation this life this Whatever this is, <laughs> this whole thing is kind of a mess. The Zen Buddhists have a great saying. They say, life is that awkward moment between birth and death. This has been, for me, a very long, awkward moment. Right? It's really kind of like that, isn't it? So Buddha, the Buddha starts off with a problem. Um, that's where he begins. He doesn't start with all these doctrines and all this esoteric stuff. He starts off with a problem. He says, basically what he says is, you have a problem. And to add insult to injury, he is actually saying, you have a problem that's 
actually not really a problem, and it's a problem that you really can't solve. Right? And so that gets really annoying because we're so used to problems and solutions. Cause and effect, figure out the cause, get rid of the cause, don't experience the effect. That, that kind of thinking doesn't really work in a room like this so much. And so he's really pointing to this, really, that I think, ultimately what we're here, whether, whether you think you're a philosophical person or not, even if you don't think you're a philosophical person, that's a philosophical position in and of itself. So I think that we really have to come to terms with the fact that because we have so much self-awareness and we have so much awareness of the world, that which is really out there, we're always finding ourselves in some kind of philosophical dilemma. And really that's what he points to is dukkha. This, and dukkha is what it is that is happening to us. In standard Buddhist soteriology, which is the study of salvation, they kind of took it a little bit too far and I think turned it on its head. And you've probably heard before that, the, that there, is, there is suffering, there is a cause of suffering, there is the end of suffering, and then there is a path that leads to the end of suffering, which sounds great, but not so. Not quite so, actually. So how do we... So to really embrace the Dharma, to really embrace life to really embrace this problem is really to actually live your life as it presents itself to you moment by moment. I mean, that's the only thing that's happened between now and the moment you were born is the moments arose and passed away and you remember some of them and you don't remember some of them and that's just kind of how we got here. So it's not so much about what can I do to be happy that, that is a, a backwards motion. That is a looking around the world, looking around uh, our place and trying to figure out what, what, is it, what does the world have for me? You know? It's not so much what, what, what is it that I can get from the world to be happy, but how can I actually contribute to the world in a meaningful way? Which is really where we started this morning. I think that's really a, a turning point for a lot of people with, with a seal of a goodness and integrity as we we're not actually, a lot of us aren't so interested in what we can get from the world, but a bit more interested in what we might be able to contribute to the world. And that's a much more positive, constructive, helpful, it just feels better. Because that you can actually do. You can contribute to the world in a meaningful way. When I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's also a Buddhist teacher named Kevin Griffin. Some of you probably know Kevin. He's done a lot of work on Buddhism and the 12 steps. And I hadn't seen him for a couple of years. And we, were, we met in Denver, actually outside of Denver, and we were talking at dinner. And we were talking about this whole self business. And, um, you know, how do we hold it? It's self, not self. And I said, the only thing that I can say, that the only thing I can say in terms of making progress is the older I get and the more practice I do, the less interest that I've become in trying to please the inner tyrant of this Dave Smith protagonist character. Like I've more or less kind of given up on that project, right? And what a relief, what a relief. I'm much more interested in other people, much more interested in the world, and that's a, a lot uh, constructive, a lot easier. I'm not, I still have all my, all my stuff, don't get me wrong, but I mostly don't believe any of it's gonna pan out. 
So I, I've kind of a bit given up on that project, and I can assure you it's definitely been very uh, enjoyable in the last many years. I've just been like, okay, enough, <laughs> that's enough out of you. We've got things to do here. So when we start to really think where he begins with this, um, this question, and I think it's a question that he had that we all have, and that, that is this waking up, right? To like, what, what do you want to do about this? You know, what do we really want to do about this? And then we really kind of uh, start to wake up to this fact of like, what is it that's actually happening to me? So I want to unpack that a little bit. I'm sure you've had moments like that. We have traumas in our lives. We have big losses in our lives, big turning points, experiences. But have you ever just had that feeling of like, just that existential plight of what the hell is happening to me? Right? Something seems to be happening. And so, again, the Buddha's not interested in how things are, but how things happen, how things come to be. How do things come to be? And everything isn't totally determined and all worked out in a God's will sense. And it's not all random chaos either. It's somewhere a combination of the two. And our job, what makes everything so hard, is trying to discern where my agency lies and where my agency does not lie. And that's hard to sort out. And so one of the topics, probably the... If there's one set of lists that appears in the early discourses more than any other list that's almost, almost on every other page of the Pali Canon is the list of the five aggregates, which a lot of times people hear that I can see your eyes glaze over already. You're like, what is this? And I find it very interesting that it doesn't get discussed that often. So when the Buddha talks about dukkha, or he, you could say in, in a Camus sense, an existential sense, life is absurd, there's like this meaninglessness, there's this kind of, we're all going to die anyway, what's the point? We can really get into despairing really, really quickly. He unpacks that pretty clearly, and usually you only get the first, there's like four ways he talks about it. And each way, at the beginning he starts with real obvious things. He's like, you were born, you're going to get sick, you're going to get old, you're going to die, that's dukkha for you. That's, that's what's happening to you right now. Right? The number one cause of death is actually birth. 100% success rate. <laughs> right. So that's, you know, most of us just kind of go, yeah, whatever, I know that, right? I can see, yeah, yeah, but yeah I, I know. Do you really know? He also says that when we, um, when we don't get what we want, that's also dukkha. Have you ever wanted something and not gotten it? Like three times today? <laughs> like the chicken at lunch? <laughs> That's dukkha for you. That's going to happen. You know, that's obvious. That's easy. But very rarely do I... I often don't get what I want. And that's fine. I have my little fits and spurts about that. But very rarely do I not get what I want and go, wow, like, dukkha, again. <laughs> the Buddha was right. Here, another example of me not getting my way. Right? I don't usually celebrate that. I still have to struggle through that a little bit usually. You're like, oh yeah, that's right. This is still happening to me. Not getting what you want is what's happening to you. How that would ever come to an end, I can't imagine. 
uh, being separated, the third way, being separated from the things that are dear to you, being separated from... Uh, and this, this is a huge uh, spectrum. So dukkha is actually a spectrum word in Pali. It has a, it's everything from being minorly irritated. It's everything from losing your car keys to losing a loved one and everything in the middle. Right? Loss, which is built into impermanence. We all lose things. We all know we're going to lose things. And at the end of the day, we all lose everything. It's all going down. And you know this. We know this. Right? But I don't think we really totally know it. And then the, the last way, the, the fourth way he talks about it, and if it doesn't ever really get unpacked so much, he said these five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. And I, I always, I'd always read that for years and years and years and be like, I have like, no idea what that means. Right. So when we look at, if we bring this into a practice perspective, what are we practicing with? What are we... What are you actually experiencing? What are you seeing moment by moment? The Buddha breaks it down into there's these really these five things that are, that are basically the building blocks that we could call the mind or experience, cognition. Right? And they, the theories that they rise, they come together and they fall away. And so we can, we can kind of see these. And so I'll kind of go through them, but I'll try to go through them a little bit more contemplatively so you can actually not so much try to understand what I'm saying, but get an experience, a sense of like, oh yeah, I understand, and oh wow, that actually is happening. I remember the first time I really got a sense of this was, um, God, I must have been like 12 years ago now. I was at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies doing one of the first secular dharma retreats that Stephen Batchelor and Martine Batchelor taught. And he did this presentation on these five aggregates and then said, well, go walk around outside now and see if you can, you know, try this out. And it was really, really profound because it was a very waking up to like, oh, this isn't theoretical. What the Buddha's saying isn't theoretical. That's part of it, but it's really experiential. He's like really trying to tell you these are the things that are happening. So as we wake up to the Dharma, we could just say in a colloquial sense, this present moment word, which you know I don't like so much, but I'll use it anyway, is that you know what's happening is that there's direct experience, there's a direct knowing, which is a word that they use. So the Buddha's always talking about direct knowledge, which is direct knowledge of what's happening here and now in this experience. And so every single moment, the mind makes contact with six senses. You know, we see things, we hear things, we taste things, we smell things. We have body sensations, and we have this sixth one, which is very interesting that the Buddha categorizes thinking or thought or mind. He doesn't privilege it at all out from the other five senses that you learned in kindergarten. So, so just the mind, the thinking mind, is a sensory experience. So just like the sound of your ears hear that bell, what he's saying is consciousness is a three-party system. So you have an organ called the ear. You have an external object called a bell that I strike. When I strike that bell, hearing arises. You're like, yeah, whatever. No, we know that. But do you, though? Do you really know that? And so what he's saying is the mind, a thought about your life, a fear about your future, a painful memory from your childhood is actually phenomenologically no different than the sound of that bell. It's just something that can be known by the mind. Right? So it really helps us. Why is this? So why is that helpful? 
maybe it's interesting theoretically, experientially, but uh, when we, what it does is it allows us to just unhook. It allows us to unhook, to be like, it's just that. It's just sound, it's just memory. Even the most painful emotions, even the, the saddest experiences we have, they're just sensations and chemicals and uh, thoughts that are just in this body system, right? Is it really so painful? Like if we really break it down, like in that sense, that's really what's being experienced. But the thing that makes it so painful is the subject-object dichotomy of I'm this person having this ter terrible experience. And what does it actually mean to be me? And until, it, until we get to that stage of the game, that's really where the suffering is. We, really, we feel bad, we feel sad, we feel we don't like ourselves, we don't like this world, we don't want it to be like this, we don't want it to be like that. So we're constantly resisting reality. But now we're not even resisting reality, we're re resisting our interpretation of reality just in that one moment, which is highly inaccurate. I mean, how many times today have you seen this? You know, how many times today were you like, I'm a person sitting, sitting in this room doing this thing. Why am I doing this thing? This thing was a bad idea. I'm not going to get anything out of this. Or an hour later, you're like, yeah, I totally got this. None of the data. It's like your mind is like a toxic social media news feed. And you're just scrolling endlessly. You're like, it's just all shit. Right? And it's like we totally get hypnotized by it. Right? There's a saying, they say, the arising is hypnotizing. So it's like, as we're sitting here, it's like these six senses are opening, there's the fullness of the experience, it's this beautiful place, great weather, like so beautiful. And what are we paying attention to? This like destructive narrative. Right? It's so hypnotizing, I can't think of a better word. And that's just the beginning of it, so we make contact with direct experience. And really where we get into the thing that's so hard, and this is like such a quiz-essential aspect of Dharma liberation, is Vedana or feeling, affect. It's a, we, we're, we're affected by everything. And also, the thing that makes it so hard is, is also Vedana. So remember, every aggregate is also Dukkha. It's all Dukkha. And so feeling, feeling is in every single moment of consciousness. It's always there, which is just stressful. To always having to be feeling something about this. It's like you can't get away. If you try to get it, you just literally cannot get away from it. You can try to increase the pleasantness and decrease the pain, which is a strategy that's totally futile. That's usually what we get into. We're like, well, if I'm stuck with this feeling thing, I'm going to control it. Right? Where's the gas pedal? Where's the brake? And that's really kind of what addiction is, really. It's a, it's, a, it's a deluded sense of being able to control feeling. So feeling is affective. It's what's happening to you. Right? And usually they, they categorize it as three. Pleasure, pain, neutral, which is actually, again, not really quite right. That's kind of a Western invention. It's too... Basic. It's not that like there's three categories. Is that there's actually pleasure, and then there's pain, and there's everything in the middle. Right. 
So we would probably say there's pleasure pain and then there's this kind of middle zone that's mostly we would probably say indifferent. So when I'm not in intense pleasure or intense pain, I mostly just kind of space out or I get bored, you know, or I kind of feel a little bit meh. I think there's a couple meh emojis. Probably use them. My wife's like, how's the party? I'm like, meh. Eh, blah. You know that feeling? That's like an emotion. Eh. It's not so great. Actually, nothing's really so great. AC. So that's really, and the theory is, and this is an important theory, and I think this is actually quite fascinating, is what the Buddha says with this Vedana system, he says, uh, with this neutral territory, I'll just use that word, he says, uh, when there's mindfulness, actual mindfulness, mindful awareness, kindness, the fullness of mindfulness, when there's mindfulness with neutrality, it becomes pleasant, it becomes equanimous, it becomes content, it becomes joyous. So, if we can occupy that neutral zone, it's deep contentment, peace, ease. But if there's not mindfulness, it becomes unpleasant. So that's a big statistic, that's a big move. So if you occupy the neutral zone, you're ahead 66 to 33, or you're down, or you're somewhere in that middle. So it's really important that we learn how to be mindful and how to be open. And this is really valuable to do on these retreats because honestly, if you think about it, most of the day today was probably fairly indifferent, right? I don't suspect anybody had moments of super intense pleasure or super intense pain. It was mostly meh. When is he going to ring that goddamn bell? (laughs) Right? Did you have that thought today? And then what happens when I ring the bell? Nothing. <laughs> you just go, you know what I mean? And then you, you're the whole time, you're like, oh, when the bell rings, oh, it's going to be over. <laughs> oh, it's going to be so great when he rings the bell, I can get up and go suffer about something else. <laughs> and then you walk outside for 20, 30 minutes, and you think to yourself, when are they going to ring that goddamn bell? <laughs> I want to go back in the hall and suffer in there. Better suffering in the hall than outside. Actually, there's nowhere good to suffer around here. This whole place sucks. So really, the, 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 the goal or the task, if you so take it on, is to really try to embrace the problem moment to moment, to embrace the uncertainty, to really as Munindra, Joseph Goldstein's first teacher, says to live the life fully. How do we fully live this life? Joseph, if you listen to some of his early, he doesn't talk about him so much anymore, but if you listen to early Goldstein talks from the 90s and the early 2000s, he talks a lot about one of his first teachers whose name was Munindra. There's actually a book written by him, the title of the book ironically is called To Live the Life Fully. And he always said that that was the goal of practice. And he was this, I never met him, but he was this little tiny Bengali fellow who had actually studied with Mahasi Sayadaw for years. He was, a, he was one of the best learned scholars. He was a scholar of the Pali Canon. He was a scholar of Abhidharma. He was brilliant Dharma knowledge, but in, in just a deep, deep practitioner, but kind of a wiry, 
kind of maniacal little guy, apparently. And he, Joseph used to always follow him around and ask him questions, you know, these big esoteric questions. And Menendra used to always stop him and say, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. That's really the whole point of all this, is to, if you want to understand what's happening to you, sit down and watch, and it all is right here. Make contact with this direct experience, these forms, these feelings arise, pleasant, unpleasant, we have a whole range of feelings about feelings. Have you noticed your feelings about feelings? About feelings about feelings? (laughs) It's endless. And then this other one, which is so huge, we can talk about this for days, is what's called sanya or perception, which is usually identified perception as recognition. So when you walk into a room, you recognize things. You recognize the floor, the ceiling, the windows, the ceiling fans. If you look around the room, notice your mind has a name for everything. Do you see anything in this room you can't actually identify? Music stand, chair, carpet, person. It's just right there for us. That's learned. So there's recognition, identification, conception, ideation. And when you talk about these words, uh, they're all rooted in, in the verb to know. So we know things. We know how we feel. We know what we see. We know what we hear. And so a, a lot of the work that we do in mindfulness is trying to recognize or to assess or to perceive the moment more skillfully in terms of more accurately, but also more ethically. How can I, you know, Rick Hansen talks about this, how can we look for what's good, right? Because we're so problem-oriented. We, we walk into a room, we walk into experience, we, we sit into the present moment and we're already like, Assessing and recognizing which is what that which is wrong or shouldn't be here, and that's all just a perception that's very untrustworthy. It's just your mind's basically moment to moment opinion about what's going on. And isn't it insane how much you believe it? I still believe some of the things my mind tells me. I'm like, where did you get that information? It's like I made it up. What I do, I make shit up, and you believe it. That's why we're all screwed up here. And so, a lot of like, if you look at the early discourses, mindfulness is really trying to get us to to perceive things more, more present, more rich, more uh, accurately, more ethically. And so, that's really a lot of what's happening here. That's what we're training ourselves to do: to perceive things leaning towards liberation rather than leaning towards suffering or destructiveness. Sanya and sati, mindfulness, recognition. And the thing that makes perception so hard, one of the things that we confuse so easily is it's very easy to confuse recognition with mindfulness. So because we recognize something, we can make the assumption that we're aware or that we're mindful of what's going on because we know we recognize it. And so mindfulness and recognition are easily, easy to get confused. And this perception, this ability to perceive, to understand, to make sense, to assess, uh, is so much of the troublemaker of the mind. So we can try to have a don't know attitude and openness attitude. 
and no three, so that's what happens. We come into the present moment, we make contact, which triggers this feeling, which triggers this perception, and then which triggers the biggest troublemaker of all of the aggregates is sankara or inclination, which is rooted in the to-do. Most of these aggregates are, are about knowing consciousness, is about knowing, perception is about knowing, feeling is about knowing, but sankara, inclination, is about based on how I feel, based on what I think I know, now I'm going to do something. It's what I call the to-do mind, which is a nightmare. Do you have that in your mind, to-do? I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna do that, and I'm gonna do this, and then that's gonna happen, and after I do that, I'm gonna do this, and then that's gonna happen. It's so futuring. Gonna do this, gonna get that, gonna do this, it's like, after a while here, you'll see after a couple of days, you're like, man, there's absolutely nothing to do around here. The mind is, and especially the features of the modern world, the world that we live in now, it's just like, this is like a really rampant habit, habituation. And this is built in, again, this is also dukkha. This is, these are these things that we're talking about, what the Buddha's trying to get us to embrace, which I think makes it so problematic, is like, it's actually your operating system. This is like, this is the operating system. This is how the thing does what it does. It's not bad, it's not wrong. We're not trying to fix it, we're not trying to change it, we're trying to control it. We're just trying to observe and try to understand. And so I say this all the time, I almost say this to everybody the first time I talk to them on Zoom, is we have to be very, very careful and we have to be constantly revisiting uh, and be very suspicious of we do this practice or we do therapy or we do recovery, whatever it is that we do, we do all of this spiritual work to solve the problem of me. Any kind of thinking that even mimics that or has that flavor, that feeling, that perception, really needs to be destroyed. It has nothing to do with us. Again, the Buddha's trying to say, that feeling you're talking about, and I get it, I get what you're saying, I feel like I'm a problem. It's not me not you. It's just the way things come to be. It's the friction. It's the tension. Sometimes they talk about dukkha as being a, an ox cart and the hole that makes the wheel roll is off a little bit. So every time it goes around, it's a bumpy ride. It, basically what the Buddha is saying is whatever this is, it doesn't fit right. There's tension. There's a kind of rubbing. There's contact, there's friction. And I don't know about you, but I have done very bizarre, strange things to try to fix that. Right. So again, the Buddha saying we, we have this problem that's actually not really a problem. Thinking it's a problem is even a bigger problem. It's, so it's really trying to lead a, a more contemplative life. And so what happens is we go, this word samsara, which is also another grossly misunderstood term. Samsara just means to go round and round. And what we do, what the Buddha is saying, is we go round and round, driven by the mechanisms of craving and aversion, by wanting this and not wanting that. And if I get this, I'll be happy. And I'll get rid of that, I'll be happy. Which actually, we never see what's happening. We never see this dharma. We never see how things come to be because we're just, we're just a little bit over here. Got to get this. Got to get rid of that, which is really craving and aversion, wanting to get the things that will be good for me to avoid the things that will be bad for me, which again, is not even really a problem because it's built in. 
it's not, you know, if you look at like Robert Wright's book, he really does a great job unpacking this from the view of evolutionary psychology as a book called Why Buddhism is True. And, you know, our biological organism is really designed to, to move towards pleasure and to repel pain. But if you multiply that into 2023, that whole thing is way out of control. And again, so we just want to be aware of it. We want to recognize it. We want to learn to live with it. We want to be kind. We want to be friendly. We want to realize that this is like just in our operating system. So don't let it bum you out. And usually the thing in there that makes it, the part about it that's so hard is I feel like it's somehow my fault. Actually, there was a great Buddhist Dharma teacher who died recently named Wes Nisker. I don't know if anybody is familiar with Wes Nisker. He was a really Bay Area guy, super funny guy. I've met him a couple of times when I was younger. He wrote a book called Crazy Wisdom. And he used to always say, you are not your fault. I used to love that. You ever feel like you're your fault? Like, well, who else could it be? Somebody's got to be responsible for this mess. Sayadaw right. Tejaniya says a very similar thing. He says... Um, I almost brought the book with me. I'll bring it tomorrow. The mind doesn't not belong to you, but it is your job to take care of it. And that's really, I think, the quintessential word that really, really resonates with the practice is, is uh, apamata, care. Right? How can I take care of this mind, of this experience? Right? To really, to be kind and to really take care and to not get dictated and separated and differentiated in between got to get this and get rid of that. And as you see, the great observational power of the mind is I don't think it would be hard for any of you like tomorrow or later tonight to sit down and observe and watch and go, wow, these are the things that are actually happening. This is what's happening to me. Human happenings, right? Where it's just like, it's okay. So like... There's a value in recognizing it and understanding it, but there's much more value. And so we talk about mind or chitta. The, the quiz essential piece to the liberation process is all about how we are relating to it. That's really all that matters. Right. How am I relating to the experience? This Brahma Vihara heart, which is, I think, the most, one of the most more undervalued teachings. Chitta Vimuti, liberation through the heart-mind, liberating life, having a meaningful life through how we relate to our experience. So again, the Buddha is not, it's not about knowing that you were born, you're going to get sick and you're going to get old and die. It's knowing how to move through that. So he's not interested in what you know, he's interested in what you know how to do. Which is what skillfulness is. How do we navigate this life? So when we're waking up to the Dharma, we're really opening up to the fullness of experience and remembering, recognizing that mindfulness, the moment, the universe, whatever you want to call it, it's, it's all here, it's all huge, it's all massive, but we make it small, we shrink it down. Right, so, so we're really trying to, so we're trying to expand outward, we're always trying to expand, opening the mind. And these qualities of mind that I mentioned the other night that Rupert Gethin calls to, the, these turning points we go through, which is the same thing Beagle Bodhi turns to. We, we come to this 
what is the quality of the mind at the turning point? And we look for these five. How do we, how do we have well-being in the mind? And so well-being, wellness in the mind, it's already there. These properties of mind, they're already there. They're always there. There's just the question of actually really what's in the way. What's the hindrance? What's blocking that? So we have this quality of wellness. We have openness. How can the mind be open? Right? Which is really, really hard. Right? So that means how do we suspend, let go of the way that our perception creates views and opinions about things? Do you have any opinions about your life and the world and other people? Right? Again, we're not going to get rid of those, but how can we maybe just like, can we just do without them sometimes? Can we, actually, can we actually learn how to suspend bias and judgment and opinion and just be open? Right? And so we can cultivate that here on multiple days. We're just practicing learning to let the mind be open. As the mind's giving you data about what it means, it's like, okay, yeah, I have the thing I've seen in my mind all the time. I go, yeah, okay, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. You don't know. Obviously, you don't know. I try to remind my mind that all the time. I'm like, you actually really don't know much. Mind is so pleased with itself so much of the time, isn't it? But I know the right thing to do here. Openness, wellness, and then this free from hindrance, which we'll talk about a little bit here during that this week. And the big ones, of course, are craving and aversion. So it's not so much that we're um, the freedom, and I mentioned this this morning, this desire to be free. I think we have to be a little bit clear about what that means. Is, uh, is when we think about freedom in like America, the free country, we're usually thinking about freedom as a freedom to do something. Like I'm free to go out and do my thing. I'm, we, we think about it that way. But really like Buddhist freedom is kind of the opposite. It's more about being free from something internally. It's freedom from. Freedom from these hindrances, freedom from greed, hatred, and confusion, freedom from craving and aversion, from restlessness, from doubt, from all of these destructive tendencies. We want to be free from those so they don't factor into how we live and how we think about ourselves and how we make meaning and how we create our life. So free from these hindrances, which creates this experience of joy, which sometimes carries too high of a tenor, but just an enjoyment, just to, to be able to just, I saw somebody earlier today just like having a cup of coffee like outside the dining hall and just like sitting there being just like, yeah, like can we just learn to enjoy the simple, and that I think is actually a skill. I think you actually have to learn how to do that. I used to do, I did this practice for years that actually was, Taught to me by my, one of my friends, Chris McKenna, who used to run Mindful Schools, who now lives in BC, up in uh, Vancouver. He's kind of a hermit now. Great Dharma teacher. Who he used to call do-nothing practice. When I lived in Nashville, Tennessee, which was actually a great period of my life, I, I, I was only doing Dharma. I, when I lived in Nashville, it was one of the things where I got it right. I moved there when it was cheap. I didn't need to make a lot of money. I had lots of free time. I could do what I want. And I would sit on my porch for hours put my phone in the house and I would just be like, I'm going to sit here for two hours and do nothing. It was so hard. It was so excruciating at times. And I was like, like, you're just going to sit here? It's like, and there were moments of just total excruciating, like torture. And I'd be like, I'm just sitting on my porch 
at my house. It should not be this hard. Right? So hard. Why is it so hard? It shouldn't be that hard. This shouldn't be that hard. And so that's really what kind of made me interested. Like, well, wow, okay, like, what's really going on? Why can't I just sit here and be truly well? I'm healthy. I'm breathing. I'm alive. Why can't I just want what I have right now? Why can't this moment just be enough? That, that, I think that's a skill. And if you're going to develop a skill, I think that is certainly one to develop. And you're doing it here. That's what, why we remove the distractions. And there's really, as you've probably noticed, and we'll learn more, there's not a whole lot to do around here. Right? Except for to be well and to be open, to be joyous, to be free. Right. And lastly, to be peaceful or to be at ease, which is, from a Buddhist perspective, understood to be the highest form of happiness. Right. So just be able to sit and just feel truly well, no problem, just here, just okay. Just open fullness, not dictated by the past and the future. And that's what the Buddha said to you, die. Let be the past, let be the future. He doesn't say, I'll show you the present moment. He says, I'll show you this Dharma. I'll he actually doesn't even say, I'll show you. He says, I'll teach you. Right? I'll teach you how to really kind of see that the moment. It's almost like the moment arises and passes away. And our job is to to get it right. right. And we have moments, we have those experiences where we're, we, we do have these five things, we do have these qualities in mind. It's like, okay, I'm getting it right. We're getting it right. I'm not hindered, I'm not blocked. So in many ways, the practice is a practice of subtraction rather than addition, which I think is helpful for a lot of us because like, a lot of us lives are so busy. I know a lot of people I talk to, our lives are like that Jenga game and there's like that one more block. And you're like, the one more block. Now I got to go on a week-long fucking retreat. Like if I just take the block, the whole thing's going to come down. You ever feel that way? You know? You play that game, it's just like... And we, that's, that's how it is now. We're just like, can I just put one more thing on the already overwhelmed pile of my life? Right? So how do we actually go the opposite way? How do we just let go of these things? So this is what we're doing here. We're, we're subtracting. We're, let that go. Let be the past. Let be the future. Let be my parents didn't do a very good job. Let be the painful relationships that didn't work out. Just let it be where it is. And finding some degree of, of sada or faith or confidence. Of like, oh no, this is, this is worth doing. Right, this practice is... Because to some degree, in many ways, and I wholeheartedly believe this, if you can really sit quietly in a room by yourself and feel and be truly well, you're kind of invincible. If that's your general... Imagine if that was your default mode network, was just like, I'm actually totally fine. I feel good. I'm present. I'm not actually a problem anymore. I don't even believe in problems. We're so invested 
Uh-huh. We were also invested in having to be some kind of problem that we have to fix. Imagine if you just gave up on that entire project, the amount of relief that would be waiting for you on the other side of that. You're like, well, now what? Just enjoy yourself. And Thich Nhat Hanh, the late Thich Nhat Hanh said it best. He said, happiness is available. Please help yourself to it. Take as much as you like. Really, go ahead. Because Eileen uh, is a fan of saying this. I'll steal her line here before we close. Is that if there's one thing the world does not need is more suffering people. That's just not helpful. The world does not need more suffering people. Right, so, so, so just being here is not just a tremendous act of generosity to yourself and to your own sense of well-being, but really to, you, know, you have the opportunity to become a Dharma door for the people that come into contact with you. you know, and, and I was really touched by one thing the Dalai Lama said years ago because the first time I got compassion fatigue syndrome, I was working in Tennessee. I was working in prisons and jails and eating disorder clinics. I was just in suffering rooms all the time, all day teaching meditation. And I just got that feeling of like, there's just no hope. Just total despair, just being like, it's just like, you know, the, you know like, it's Sisyphus with the boulder, but I'm like, now I'm like walking backwards down the hill, that feeling, you know what I mean? Like, I, not only is this boulder hard to push up the hill, but I'm actually walking backwards down. And that's just like that kind of really strong sense of overwhelm. And so we don't need more of that. And so we have this opportunity to try to bring this, these positive change. So don't underestimate the value of being that kind of person. And you've all had that person, right? Like everybody here, I would argue and guess, everybody sitting in this room is here because of somebody else. Right? Somebody gave you a book, somebody turned you onto a podcast, somebody brought you to a group, somebody, somebody did something, right? Didn't, didn't it start somewhere? There was some doorway that you walked through or that you fell through or got pushed through. <laughs> Who cares how you got through it? Right? So, so you're already, it's already, uh, you know, the, you're already on the path. It's already happening. This is it. So we can, it's always nice uh, and the pandemic killed us on this. It's so, it's, it's so nice to feel part of, like I'm doing something with other people. We're doing the same thing. It's so good for us. This is such a hard practice to do in isolation. So I offer that for your reflection this evening. Thank you for your kind attention. And let's just sit for a minute or two.